welcome to those online. And uh, yeah, we're going to keep going outdoors as long as we can. And uh, yet at the same time, we're going to, uh, if we need to go indoors, it's just going to be a few. Because we're going to just exclude too many people. It'll just be, we'll switch to online properly. We'll go full on online. Um, and just those who are literally helping us lead the service and some of the prayer team, etc., um, will uh, will be coming in person. So Jesus obviously loves outdoor church. is one of the memes I got this week. So uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's really great. We need to, Lord. We need to. So every Sunday is a gift, and we take it as that. So it's Father's Day. So Dad joke alert. What does a buffalo say to son when to his son when he leaves for work? Bye, son. It's got to wait for you to catch it. Okay. How much do roofs cost? Nothing. It's on the house. <laughs> uh, I've got I've got better ones here. <laughs> do you hear about the cheese factory that got blown up? Debris was everywhere. <laughs> okay, my favorite one. I have a pen that can write underwater. can write a lot of other words, but my favorite word is underwater. <laughs> okay, okay, enough, enough. Mercy, mercy. Okay. Um, we continue in our series, The Power of Ministry. And we looked at the Old Testament prototype, Elijah, Elisha, that kind of handover of anointing, that impartation, and the succession plan that Jesus has for us, this extraordinary ministry of Jesus that is actually our training curriculum. And, uh, and then we learn from Jesus how he did ministry out of this love relationship with the Father and by the presence, fullness, power, anointing, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and then, of course, by the authority of his own uncompromised name. And, and not only was he uncompromised, but by his death, he bought for us the right to be restored to uh, the authority of using his name. Our names are not going to count, but his name is now entrusted to us. Um, so those are some of the background things. Thank you to Hillary for just taking us through that. Um, that this power of ministry is to make us whole, that the, there's this wholeness, this sozo that comes to us. But I want to go to Mark chapter 6 today, and we're going to pick up in verse 1. Jesus had been across the lake uh, into the Gentile area, set someone free there, and then he had come back to nearer to his hometown, and uh, he had uh, healed the woman with the issue of blood and, and raised Jairus' daughter. And then we, we come to Mark chapter 6 and verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given to him? What are the remarkable miracles he's performing? So notice there's wisdom, there's truth, there's insight, and at the same time there's miracles. And uh, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. 
in a staggering statement, and it's accurately translated. And he could not do any miracles there, brackets, except lay his hands on a few people who were ill and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now today, I'm not going to do an expository sermon on this passage. I'm going to do a topical sermon on faith as a catalyst gift. Faith is a catalyst that enables other ministry to happen. And so we're going to dive in and look at, if we're talking about ministry, there is something that is essential. There's actually a gift that is essential for any other ministry to take place. And that gift is faith and it operates as a catalyst. So Galatians chapter 3 and verse 5, for example, does God give his spirit and work miracles among you? That sounds just like what we heard about in Jesus's life. As he was doing miracles, he had this spirit of wisdom. He had this spiritual, a spirit of supernatural power that was there. Does he give his spirit and work miracles among you uh, by the works of the law? In other words, because you've learned to keep some rules or by your believing what you've heard. In other words, this stuff happens because you've got faith. Now, in the one story, Jesus is amazed at their lack of faith. Now, the interesting thing is the story starts with this, that the people were amazed by what Jesus was doing. They were amazed by the balance of supernatural power, signs and wonders, and yet at the same time, wisdom. Jesus held a wisdom that was not presumption, (laughs) It was genuine insight and understanding. And at the same time, he carried this supernatural power. And when people believe what they hear, something begins to flow in their life. Why? Because faith is a catalyst. Now, now, I've got a rock and a plant. What happens when light energy hits this rock? Anyone? It warms up or it reflects. So this is, a, this is a white rock, so it's going to reflect a lot. I was, I was hoping to find a black one, but my garden didn't have a black rock. And if I had a black rock, it would absorb the energy. But whatever happens, because there is no living agency inside this rock, the light actually just bounces off. Nothing really happens because there's no living catalyst. The light hits it for sure, and the light either just bounces off it or things get hot. But there is no real change. Now, I have got a succulent, the offcut of which I stole from the front of the church. But you know, in the Bible, I mean, in biblical language, when you multiply things, you're not really stealing. So, um, I just I just took a little snip and then popped it in this pot plant and have been watching uh, a couple of my succulents grow courtesy of the church garden. If you want to do the same, just ask first, okay? Um, any case, now I can multiply this thing because it's amazing. Now, what happens when light energy hits this plant? It it grows. Why? Because solar energy, water, now this is, you know, um, asknature.com, okay? Um, 
and carbon dioxide. So the light coming from the sun, and, and the sunlight is best because it gives a full spectrum of light. Light coming from the sun, together with water that's drawn from the, the root system, etc., interact with the carbon monoxide, that, uh, dioxide that's, uh, that's used. And these three things come together to produce growth, which is organic compounds. So this is carbon that's effectively growing because more and more carbon uh, is being pulled out of the air. And what happens is as this, uh, the carbon dioxide is pulled out of the air, the carbon converts to this and oxygen is released into the atmosphere. That's why we love plants and why we want plants to be around a lot because they help us breathe. Now, what happens is that there is a catalyst. Now, the catalyst is a chlorophyll pigment that gets, listen to this. Now, this is the scientific description, excited by the solar energy. So the sun comes and lands on this little plant. And this little plant, because it's got a living enzyme called chlorophyll inside it, part of that chlorophyll gets all excited as the light lands on this catalyst, it gets activated. And instead of just getting hot, it donates its electrons to, uh, to, uh, to the plant, the part of the plant that wants to grow. And those electrons enable this plant to steal the carbon from the air and discard the oxygen. And that carbon becomes part of the plant and there's energy inside that plant. And then as the process completes the electrons return to the chlorophyll. And the chlorophyll, although essential to the process, is not changed by it, but it makes the process possible. It is a catalyst. That's what a catalyst does. Stuff won't happen. You can have all the other ingredients. You can have light, you can have water, whatever. But if chlorophyll is not present, the catalyst inside the plant, the plant cannot grow and you will not get life as your byproduct, oxygen. Now, the interesting thing is the chlorophyll doesn't get used up. It just lends energy to the process. And all the chlorophyll has to do, as it were, is let the light shine on it. <laughs> it gets all excited. <laughs> it gets stirred up. Its energy rises. Now, faith is the living energy on earth that gets excited when power starts coming from heaven. That's it. And it lends itself to the things that could be harmful, the needs, and turns the things that could be harmful <laughs> into ministry. And its byproduct is growth and life. That's a catalyst. Does that make sense to you? <sighs> Say it again is the question. Okay. So faith is the living energy that comes from heaven and gets excited by sorry faith is the living energy on earth that gets excited by the light coming from heaven something shines from heaven awakens something inside of faith and then faith enables that which was once a problem the carbon to become part of the very growth inside the plant and the byproduct is oxygen and health and so what we find is that faith makes other ministry happen. Jesus wanted to do ministry in his hometown. 
But the catalyst simply wasn't there. There wasn't that living, excitable thing on the earth that responded to the energy coming from heaven. And so, for example, Acts chapter 3, verse 16, is very clear that healing is by faith in the name of Jesus. This man you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and the faith that comes through him that has completely healed this man. As you can see, so the gift of healing needed faith. Prophecy. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in proportion or accordance to your faith. Romans 12, verse 6. And so to mission or preaching, sharing your faith, evangelism, leadership, service, generosity, social action, justice, all of them are going to take faith from you. But the faith doesn't get stolen. The faith is the catalyst that makes the other things happen. And so when we step into ministry, when do you need faith? You need faith when you don't have guarantees. When you step into ministry, we don't have guarantees, but what we must have is faith. Just as confidence in God. Paul Pearson, a church historian in, in mission, writes this. Perhaps the re- one reason many of us do not see very much activity of the Holy Spirit is we're always playing it safe. We're always playing it safe. A friend of mine spells faith R-I-S-K. You got to step out there. But it's helpful to understand that, you know, faith comes by hearing. Faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit, 1 Corinthians 12, and it comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God, Romans chapter 10. And so if I understand how to nurture and steward my faith, I can prepare myself to be ready to do ministry. And I then realize I can't always play it safe. I, I, I literally can't. I don't have guarantees when I step out. When I step out to share my faith, I don't have a guarantee the person will give their life to Jesus. I don't have a guarantee that they won't get offended. But I still step out and share faith. When you invite someone into your home, you've got no guarantee that it's going to be a great time of hospitality but you step out you invite them in and you minister to them through that gift of grace when you're starting to share your stuff in compassionate action you've got no guarantee that that person's life will be meaningfully turned around but you still take the risk and you go for it why because the energy of heaven is stirring something up in you now there's three inseparable elements of faith first point faith is a catalyst Second point is the DNA of faith. I know that DNA normally has four things, but I found three. The first is the DNA of faith is faith has this element of a belief, the truth that you must hold to. And you've got to work out what are the lies and what is the truth and what is the worldview that I've been given that works against faith and how do I take my thoughts captive, make them obedient to Christ and get my thinking Heaven aligned rather than just culture formed. You know, Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. So this aspect, this part of the DNA, is the thinking component. It really matters. We've got to get our theology right 
The second part is our trust. This is confidence in the person of God. We've, God has really taken us there this morning. He's reminded us of a truth, but he's invited us to really hear his voice and trust him. You see, faith, <laughs> no amount of thinking is going to get you to all the answers when it comes to an infinite God. I mean, we must work hard on thinking right, but you've just got to realize your thinking is always too small. Your thinking is always incomplete. And so when it comes to an infinite God, there comes a point at which you've got to go, Abba, this is bigger than me, but it's not bigger than you. A little bit about the analogy of the goal. He can do it. I can't. And so my trust is in him. You know, when, when we're facing stuff that we don't know, and, and you know, in COVID right now, we may be facing stuff that literally is life and death. And, and I never got to chat. I've been chatting um, this morning with Pastor Robert Fackeline's mom, Auntie Claire, because it's just a very tough day for her. And having lost Uncle Michael and Robert in those few weeks in December in the second wave. And, and although I didn't get to chat to Robert, I, I got to spend quite a lot of time with Steve Thomas, literally praying for him in the driveway just the day before he went into hospital and then ongoing WhatsApp conversations. Even when he was on the ventilator, they gave him a moment to take it off and we would call and pray. One of the things that was most fundamental in those times is that we don't know what the outcome of this is. But the one thing we refuse to surrender is our trust. So there's a knowledge component, but there is a trust component to your faith, which is profoundly personal, and it doesn't need all the answers. And it certainly takes us beyond this transactional space. God, if you do this, then I will believe. No, 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 no. It's I trust you. I'm, I am yours, you are mine, my beloved is mine, and I am his, and that's enough for me. Now, I don't use that to wipe off the challenge of stepping into kingdom ministry. I don't just say, oh, well, I trust him, therefore I don't need to pray in faith or whatever. No, no, no. We go bravely to places, but that's precisely because we trust him and it's not a transaction. How do I know if it's a transaction? God, if you don't come through, then I'm going to da 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 and I'm going to get grumpy, and I'm going to give up, and I'm going to throw my spiritual toys. I trust him. And then the third kind of strand in the DNA is expectancy. Expectancy. You know there's a gift of faith coming when... Like literally you feel the energy, You're, the protons and the electrons are starting to move and things, there's like a chemistry going on in the moment and it's, and it's very time located. It comes linked that you have an expectation that is linked to a sense of time. Now, the reality of this, again, this is a risk because, you know, we prophesy in part, we only see in part, we know in part, 1 Corinthians 13. But here's the key thing. When Jesus was doing this kind of ministry, people took offense. Number one, they took offense at who God was using. You know, the closer you know someone, if you're not careful, 
the more likely you are to think God shouldn't use them. And we have to consciously, consciously say, God can use the people I know best. And God has got amazing plans for them. And God is so good at using people and calling out that best. We call it honor. Jesus says a prophet is without honor. And it's when people refuse to see that in little old Jesus, that's how they saw him, you know. The carpenter's son, and we know his brothers, and we know his sisters, and we know this and that. And they, they take offense at who God is using. The other thing people take offense at, for example, in the ministry of Elijah and Elisha, Jesus pointed out in Luke 4, is we take offense at who God is blessing. (laughs) God often uses the least likely. He uses the marginal. The history of missions is littered with renewal that comes from the most unlikely people and places. And the other thing we take offense at is what is not happening. You know, John the Baptist was struggling with this. He, his expectation for himself, you know, he had expected judgment and blessing. And in Jesus, judgment was delayed and blessing came. And he was really upset because he wanted the Romans to get their comeuppance. And he wanted Israel restored. He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets and he was living for Messiah. But he expected Messiah to bring both fire, (laughs) he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire, and he was disappointed there wasn't enough fire of judgment on on Israel's enemies. He's like, what the heck? And Jesus points him to the ministry that is happening. Don't take offense at what is not happening. Just set your eyes and look at the things the lame are walking, the blind see, the deaf hear, the good news is being preached. Don't take offense at your unanswered prayer. Give thanks for the answers you have received. It's so, so critical to preserve your faith. So that's the thing. Point number three there. Look at the opposites of faith. Recognize when they are at work. Fear is a powerful form of negative faith. So when Peter was walking on the waves towards Jesus, by the way, Peter was not God. Jesus was, I mean, Jesus was God, but he was not walking on the waves because he was God. He was walking on the waves because God had decided to display his power through a man on the earth called Jesus right at that moment. If walking on the water is proof that you're God, then Peter's also God, and we're all in serious trouble. (laughs) So Peter walks on the water, Matthew 14. But then what happens? He looks around, sees the wind and the waves, and he becomes afraid. Negative faith. Negative faith kicks in and takes away that energy that he was drawing from at that moment that was causing him to grow and do the God stuff. And then at the end, when Jesus reaches out and picks him up and they walk back to the boat, that must have been the funnest part of them all. Like the walk back to the boat with Jesus. Like we often think of when he sank, you know, but Jesus holding his hand. And now he's kind of thinking, oh, this is the way to do it. You know, like this is the way to do it. And then they climb in the boat and Jesus says, so why were you afraid? Why did you doubt? 
Why did you doubt? Doubt can be such a powerful form of negative faith, and we need to recognize when doubt is taking away the energy of heaven. We need to recognize when the thing's coming, and heaven's warming me up, and heaven's getting me ready for this thing, and I've got these other voices that are coming in and saying, but, but, I know Bible says, but, I know God promises, but, and I've got to kick some butt, really, get rid of that stuff. And then, of course, shame. Jesus wants to heal a man. Everyone's watching, and there is shame all over this man because of bad theology. He's been lowered through the roof, and Jesus says to him, Son, your sins are forgiven you. He wants to deal with the guilt and shame culture, the atmosphere of shame that rests upon this man. And, of course, there's a whole lot of other stuff that happens. But notice that Jesus deals with shame in order to open the atmosphere of heaven and bring healing into that space. And then discouragement, the fact that you have to try again. There's some nonsense theology that says if you have to to wait or to try again, then it can't be God. That if you ask and you've got a big wait, then then you must just... I know Paul asks three times for his thorn and then then he, he, he makes peace with that. And sometimes we do make peace, but it's a nonsense theology that says if you have to try again, it can't be God. If you have to pray again, it can't be God. Go tell that to Elijah when he's on Mount Carmel and he gets on his knees and he puts his nose between his knees and he prays towards a blue sky like we've got and he's longing for rain and he's already told the king, go get some food because the rain is coming and there's this blue sky and he prays and he sends his servant. Servant comes back and he says, blue sky and he prays again. Once, twice, three, four, five, six times, nothing. And eventually he comes back and, you know, you know I, I've been in this place when you pray for a miracle and you like see this cloud the size of a man. So, I mean, hold your hand up and look how big that the sky is compared to that little thing. You're kind of going, really? And Elijah says, it's all I need. Tell the king to go because the rain is coming. How many times did Naaman have to wash in the River Jordan? Seven times. There's a really interesting prophetic story at the very end of Elijah's life. King Jehoash, uh, Jehoash, Jehoash, comes to him and he's being uh, faced by Aram, the kingdom of Aram, and they're about to go to war. And Elisha tells him, first to shoot an arrow, but then he says this, take an arrow, strike the ground. So the king strikes the ground three times and stops. And Elisha's angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. You would have completely destroyed Aram and defeated them. But now you'll only defeat it three times. God gave victory, but you've got to stay with it, 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 stay with it. Don't you smash the arrow into pieces. I mean, we normally used to, the first part of the prophetic act, shoot the arrow normally. But he wants him to beat this arrow until it is broken. And sometimes when you are praying for freedom, when you're trying to deal with sin, when you're coming up against sickness, injustice, brokenness, poverty, whatever it is, you have to smash that thing again and again and again. And the thing that will come against your face is a spirit of despair and discouragement. So you've got to watch out. Like 
take charge of your heart. Manage your thoughts when you sense fear, doubt, shame, and discouragement coming against you. You've got to, it's, like, it's, it's like a positive action of hard work. Notice this, that all of this takes place in a collective atmosphere of faith. Jesus had not lost faith for one moment, just because he went home. But he realizes that other people are either partnering with what heaven is bringing or they're resisting it. And they're partnering with fear or doubt or shame or dishonor and unbelief. Explore, here's the great thing. We can build a culture and an environment of faith. Here's the scary thing. We can build the opposite as well. And what we carry as a community is so important in the ministry we are able to bring. One of the other things is I really want to recommend as a practical thing. Get yourself a faith coach. Mine is a guy called Bruce Collins who lives in Wales at the moment. He has got the most insane gift of faith, and I, I thank God for it regularly, and I honor him. And as much as he terrifies me, I keep dragging myself back into the experience where he demands so much more faith from me than I think I have got. So what we need to do is not give up. Try again. In 2013, I was in a meeting where towards the end of the time of worship and Bruce Collins, my mentor, had taken me into this meeting and Bill Johnson, the infamous Bill Johnson, who I really honor and respect, don't agree with on everything, but I want to say that publicly, I think it's important. He stood up and he said, there is healing power in the room. So if anyone is sick, get someone near you to pray for you. Now, Andy, the man next to me, pointed to his arm and he said, and he had a, he had a shirt on, like uh, a long, uh, I think he had a short sleeve shirt on actually. And, and he was still trying to explain the thing. And uh, he said he had a rugby injury that had severed his bicep at the top completely. And the muscle had dropped and atrophied down just below the elbow. And he couldn't really lift this elbow. So he had to compensate in a dozen different ways because his bicep had been severed and not repaired in a rugby injury. And so he, he said, well, put your hand here, and, and you could feel it's like a lump just above. It's a small little lump because it obviously had atrophied so badly. It's a small little lump just above the crook of my elbow. So I put my hand there, and I'm about to start doing all the sort of like warm-up stuff I've learned, all the tricks Bruce had taught me, like come Holy Spirit, you know, build up faith. I put my hand on, and I haven't even prayed, and it's like I tasered this guy. Like literally he jumps a meter and stares at me with wide eyes trembling like I had zapped him with a couple of thousand volts. And then I say, come here, let me pray for you. He says, you don't need to. And he starts doing this like instantly, instantly. 
The whole thing. And I mean, I went and stayed at his house a few days later. And he comes outside and he picks up my suitcase and he starts doing this. He's about 10 years older than I was about then. So he's like in his late 50s and he starts picking up the su- my suitcase, 20 kgs of my suitcase. It had not just been reconnected. It had been re-energized. It was the most remarkable instant healing I have ever seen. I had been in Liverpool shortly before that. There was a lady named Fiona who was diabetic and she was going blind because her eyes had started going like hard. And the, the eye endings were snapping off the back of the eye. And over five years, multiple doctor's appointments and scans later, they had mapped the loss of vision in her eyes where the optical nerves had literally popped off the back of her eyes and they'd been absorbed by the body so there were no nerves left. There was nothing they could do for her eyes. And she was helping me register and then she was going to retire from working and take a disability pension because she was going blind. And I asked her if I could pray for her. And I've got to say that in the context that she was, she had had Bill Johnson pray for her. She had had Bruce Collins pray for her. She had had a bunch of guys pray for her in that context, and nothing had happened. She said, I've, I've just had to make my peace with what I'm facing, and I'm happy to trust God. And I said, and I'm happy to trust God, and I've got a component of my faith that is not letting go, and that is expectation. So she said, I I need to think about it before I let my heart step out. I said, if you need to borrow my faith, you can. I want to pray for you if you let me. So about a day and a half later, she came to me and she said, please would you pray for me? And I prayed for her. And all she said in the time that we did the ministry, it was about half an hour, 40 minutes, and we prayed and we prayed, and the spots didn't go away because obviously she had these spots, unsighted spots. She just said, I know God loves me, and I've got so much peace. And I said, thank you, Lord. Then I had to go to Whip Deshaboon's funeral. And when I got back from Thailand, an email was waiting for me in South Africa. She'd gone for the test. And not only the five years of regression had it been mapped the dots were gone from her eyes when she woke up the next morning but somehow the optical nerve endings that had been absorbed by her body had been recreated in her eyes and she had perfect vision and they were able to see that on the scan now what you've got to do yes thank you lord thank you lord thank you lord now why do i say that Because something in me didn't want to let go. Now, I know that I have been entrusted with a ministry of faith, not just a a gift every now and then. Faithlessness and unbelief is like offensive to me. I can't understand it. It's a gift I've got, but it's also something I'm meant to give away. It's at that level. And I have to contend for it. And I've prayed for other blind people, and they haven't been. prayed for a lady in New Zealand, and her eyes just didn't respond. 
But I'm, I can't take offense at what's not happening. I just can't explain it. But I want to preserve that expectancy. See, faith is knowledge. And I believe with all my heart the knowledge that the kingdom brings every kind of good gift. And faith is trust. And faith is expectancy. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, we can't explain these things. We'll go mad if we try. But we can't believe them. And Lord, we want to say, do among us what you've done in your word. Do among us what you've done in the nations. Do among us what you are stirring for us. Jesus, we want as your people to have oh, such an environment of faith. Forgive us for when we've dishonored the gifts in one another. Forgive us for when we've been afraid, what if this doesn't work? Forgive us for when we've been defined by fear instead of courage. And then just say, thank you, Holy Spirit, that faith is a gift. Just pray that in your heart. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that faith is a gift. Just think of that. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Faith is a gift. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing by the Word of God. Will you receive a fresh impartation of faith? Your heavenly Father wants to know. He's giving gifts on Father's Day. <laughs> you want a fresh impartation of faith? <laughs> Just stand. You want a fresh impartation? A fresh... And for, for some of you, you're thinking, this is faithful ministry. I've barely got faith to believe in God. Well, listen... <laughs> You've got to start somewhere, guys. If that is the faith you need, you're welcome to come to the Father and say, Father, forgive my unbelief. I believe, help my unbelief. You're welcome. You're welcome. The Father wants to restore faith today. He wants to increase faith today. Faith like a mustard seed is enough and he's in the planting business today and he's in the growing business. In the Bible, a seed never stays a seed. It always grows to produce life. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your anointing just coming on people even as we hear right now. I can just sense some of you just receiving, receiving. Just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I receive your gifts today. 